Hey, welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast brought to you by CloudSpot, the all-in-one solution for photographers to deliver and even sell your photos online. I'm your host, Raymond Hadfield, and today is our monthly Q&A episode. So I know that you have photo questions, and I want to answer them for you right here on the show. So whenever you have a question about photography, day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can just head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash QA and send me your questions. Again, that is beginnerphotopod.com forward slash QA and send in your questions now. So with that, let's go ahead and get on into today's questions. All right. The first question that I have today is from Anthony. Now, Anthony says, I am a hobbyist photographer from Baldwin Park, California. I do landscapes, portraits, street photography mostly. And it seems that every time I get on location, I get too excited and get ahead of myself by immediately shooting away because I don't often have much time. I become afraid of missing a moment. So I take shots without considering important settings such as focus mode uh, slash focus point and the best shutter speed. I also miss out on composition opportunities that I would see if I would have slowed down. I know that I need to slow down, but I need help on steps to take when I get on location. Thank you for the amazing podcast. Keep up the great work. Anthony, thank you so much for your question. And guess what? I have struggled with this too. Uh, and in fact, I kind of still struggle with this today, uh, but in a different sense. Um, I, I think you'll just always wish that you had more time to shoot, you know, especially after you come home and you look at the photos and uh, you give that assessment of this is how this photo could be better. This is how this photo could be better. And the answer always comes down to if I had more time, I would have, you know, saw these things better. So again, I've been there, uh, but, you know, being new to photography, you got to get over that immediate hurdle of, yay, I'm out here and I have my camera. Like, this is so great. I got to capture all these photos. So what I suggest, um, I think today is that you need to uh, both, well, you need to anchor yourself and you do that with both some sort of focus and give yourself rules. Right. So, uh, again, I know that when I had first started, when I had the camera and I got to go out, I wanted to capture everything. Um, if I saw somebody walking down the street, street photography, if I saw a nice, uh, I don't know, uh, composition of a, a building, suddenly I was an architecture photographer, uh, photographer rather. Uh, so it's like you're, you're just trying to see what pops up in front of you and then capture that, but you're still holding yourself to this high standard of all these different types of photographers. And that's really hard. Uh, and I find, at least for me, I'm not able to shoot in that way. I'm not as uh, skilled at, at, at switching gears real quick. So again, I suggest to anchor yourself with a focus and with rules. So you can do this by saying, you know, just something as simple as, you know what, today when I go out and shoot, I'm going to focus on just composition. Uh, or I'm going to focus on X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is that you want to do. I'm going to focus just on timing. I'm going to focus just on moment. I'm going to focus on uh, seeing light. And then you give yourself some rules, right? So I find the easiest ones are either I will only take a photo if or when I take a photo, I will. So as an example, I will only take a photo if I can fit the the shot within the rule of thirds, right? If we're going to stick with the composition, um, uh, you know, idea here, uh, or saying when I do take a photo, I will also try the same composition, but vertical, you know, and then I will just turn that, um, 
you know, the camera vertical and then just try something new because uh, it's when you are able to uh, try something and then make slight adjustments that you will start seeing things a bit more creatively because suddenly you're going to compare, was this one better or was the last one better? And then once you know that, then you're going to go into, okay, well then now what's the next step, right? So, um, you know, you could say I'll, I'll turn the composition vertical or when I take a photo, I will, you know, also make sure that I take a photo, photo that can fit within the leading lines composition. So, you know, um, I find that if you turn this into a game for yourself, you're going to see that you can go deeper rather than wider. And when you go wide, that can be overwhelming because it'll always feel like you don't have enough time because you never will to capture all those things. If you go deeper and you can focus your attention, suddenly all of that time is focused on, you know, one aspect of it. And then again, you're able to, uh, uh, to go deeper. So, um, as far as subject goes, or as far as a uh, focus goes, um, you know, every photo, needs a subject. So simply ask yourself before every shot, well, what is my subject? And then is my focus point on, on that, on my subject, right? So today, every time I go out and I shoot, before I take a photo, my first thought is always, what is the subject? What am I, what am I, what am I trying to take a photo of here? And then once I figure that out, what composition will make this subject stand out? And unless there is, I mean, a clear composition based on what's going around me, um, you know, as far as like framing or leading lines, I always start with the rule of thirds because for one, it just never looks bad. Um, and it's just a great place to start and grow from and then figure out how you can grow from there. So if we go back to that, um, you know, when I take a photo, I will, once you, you know, take the photo as a rule of thirds composition, then you have to find something else, right? Turn it, say, turn it into leading lines. Now you're going to look at the photo and then you're going to look around and say, well, what could potentially create, create lines that will point uh, the viewer's eye to my subject here? And again, it forces you to go deeper rather than immediately take the photo that isn't that great. Um, and then say to yourself, well, what is the next subject here? So, um, Again, every time I take a photo, I ask, what is the subject? And then what composition will make the subject stand out? And then is my focus point on that subject? And then that is it. So hopefully you can kind of take those uh, uh, rules, those guidelines, right? Find a way to uh, focus your attention and anchor yourself with, uh, with you know, the, the focus and rules and be able to slow down a bit, take a deep breath, uh, and you know, be able to capture photos that you are, uh, happier with. And, you know, lastly here, it really, it really is all about just going deeper into a photograph that is going to be able to create those, you know, um, uh, images that, that stand out more because when you go deeper, the only way to do that is, is by focusing more of your time onto that thing. So again, uh, Anthony, I really hope that, that, uh, that helps. I'm excited to see some of your photos uh, coming up once you kind of start to implement, uh, these ideas into your own photography. All right. Next question that we have here is from Celeste. Celeste says, how should you go about being confident in directing people? Celeste, you are not alone. Everybody is like, I take that back. There are some people who are just freakishly good at directing people. Um, but I would say for the majority of the people, 
getting started with directing somebody is a very difficult thing to do uh, because naturally we don't want to tell strangers uh, how they should act or how they should run their lives essentially. So now when we have them in front of our camera, it very much feels like that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, so that part feels uncomfortable, but also just not knowing exactly what it is that we want makes it hard to verbalize how to get somebody looking uh, good. So I find that, you know, when it comes to being confident in directing people, confidence comes from feeling comfortable. And that means simply having a plan and knowing how to achieve it. And then you practice. And I know what you're thinking, right? Oh, practice, right? And I get it because practice seems like... Uh, trivial uh, seems like just this overused term because everybody's going to tell you that that is the key but it it holds a timeless truth <laughs> and that is that the key to mastering any craft is practice you, you you have to start off somewhere to get to the level of of mastery or in this case just feeling confident right and no matter of YouTube videos or, you know, uh, uh, posing podcasts uh, or even, you know, my own 25 uh, posing guide, 25 page posing guide that you can actually grab for free over at photoposingguide.com will help you to pose without practice. And I think that the real learning comes um, when you when you when you start to put that knowledge into practice. So. You know, all these, you know, all these sources, the, the YouTube videos, the, the podcasts, they're going to help you get that knowledge, but then you have to put that into practice. And that means that you just simply need time behind the camera and you need the time working with people. And again, I, I've been there and I remember very specifically times when I would pack up my gear after a session and get into my car and feel that, you know, that, that sinking sensation of, I mean, complete dissatisfaction, thinking, I wish that I had performed better. I wish that this felt more effortless. But I am here to tell you that when you practice enough, it becomes second nature. And that means that your skills will improve. And grabbing my free photo posing guide uh, for inspiration will help too. Again, that's over at photoposingguide.com. All right. Next question comes from Jason. Jason says, um, here we go. When shooting in manual mode, does it matter what metering mode the camera is in? Matrix, spot, centered, you know, etc. Also, when adding flash to manual mode, does the metering mode affect anything? Thanks. All right, Jason. Ooh, we're going to get a bit technical here. I hope that everybody can keep up. Um, uh, I'm going to try to throw in some, some uh, analogies. Okay. Um, in, let me start off by saying that in any of the assisted shooting modes, like auto, like aperture priority, like shutter speed priority, et cetera, you know, the metering mode is, is crucial because it is what determines your exposure and therefore your camera settings that the camera will use to achieve that exposure. The metering mode determines how your camera sees and reads light. So, uh, you know, in, um, uh, in matrix mode, it kind of is like matrix is kind of like this auto mode where it just kind of tries to figure out what you're trying to photograph spot 
your camera is only reading the center uh, most um, like five percent of the image. So assuming that you're pointing your camera directly at the thing that you are uh, focused on, that there's not, you know, an off to side composition or anything like that. And then centered takes the centermost, I believe like 40% of the uh, frame and then uses that light information to determine what is over or, or what is, you know, properly exposed. When you are shooting in manual, your metering mode will do nothing to your image because in manual mode, you are in full control of your camera settings. So when you are in manual mode, your, your, your metering mode <laughs> is still important because it will give you the info on what your camera believes is a proper exposure. So, um, the, the metering mode is what, um, I guess I kind of skipped over that. The metering mode is what tells your light meter at the bottom uh, on, on your camera. There's a, when you look into it, uh, for, for the majority of cameras, it's, it's on the bottom. There's like a zero and then a plus one, plus two, plus three, and then a negative one, negative two, negative three. I think on Nikon, it's off to the, uh, the left, I believe. Uh, but it gets that information. That is the, uh, exposure. That's your camera telling you how over or underexposed your image is, right? And it gets that information from which metering mode you are in. So if you're in matrix mode, it's going to read different. It might say that your photo is one stop overexposed, whereas in spot, it might say that it's properly exposed, whereas in centered, it might say that it's, you know, a third of a stop overexposed, even though you're not changing your camera, you're not changing your light. It is how you're telling your camera how to read the light, right? So again, the metering mode is still important in manual because it gives you that information uh, on what it believes is a proper exposure. And it, it's, it's important to understand that uh, this light reading is based on what that metering mode considers is a quote unquote correct exposure and not necessarily what you might see as aesthetically pleasing or, or accurate. You would simply just use that information to choose your own exposure, your own settings to, to choose your own exposure. Now, as an example, if, if you're shooting a, a white dress, right? Say a wedding, um, or your shot has a lot of open sky in it. Open sky is very bright. A white dress is white. Your camera doesn't see that as a color. It sees that as exposure, right? So it thinks that a white dress is super bright. It's so bright that there's no information here. It's, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, pure brightness, but you will need to know uh, that just by photographing those things that your camera settings should technically be overexposed according to the meter, because you want that white dress to look white. You don't want it to look gray, which is what your camera will will do. It will underexpose your image enough to where that white dress looks gray. Um, and again, that's because your camera sees that white dress as, as a bright exposure and not as white the color. Uh, and because your metering mode also has no effect on your image when shooting manual, it also won't do anything to your flash. You are still in control of the output of your flash. So Jason, I hope that that helped. Um, I will say personally, when shooting in manual mode, I just always leave my camera, I mean, 99% of the time in uh, center weighted because for the, the majority of the time, that's kind of where my subject is going to be. But also, um, I, uh, shooting Fuji, I have a live 
exposure preview of, and this is true with any mirrorless camera or if you're shooting live view, uh, with a DSLR, you have a, a, a an exposure, um, preview of what the image is going to look like with your chosen settings. So, um, oftentimes I, just make sure that it looks properly exposed. I can see my subject and um, then I just take the photo. So while I will glance at the at the meter reading, whether it says it's exposed or, or overexposed, underexposed, I don't necessarily use that as um, the end all be all. Sometimes I'll just use my eye and then just with experience, I know how much I can save or uh, you know, save in, in post, how much I can do with an image in post. Um, so the difference between, you know, um, a third of a stop overexposed, third of a stop underexposed, I mean, even almost up to a full stop isn't um, a big deal because I know that I can correct that in post if I need to. Um, so I just do my best to get close enough, uh, not focus on getting settings exactly right, perfect every time because there's just no way you can properly tell looking you know, at a, at a, at a viewfinder that's half an inch big, you know, you you really need to see something larger to, to get an accurate view of that. So, uh, I hope that helps. I know it's kind of confusing. Um, but that's just how I have found best to, to just shoot and, uh, most efficiently, I suppose. So again, um, uh, I really hope that helps Jason. All right. Next question that we got here today comes from uh, Sicily. Sis. Hey, Raymond here. If you're sometimes baffled by which camera settings to use, then I've got just the thing for you. My free guide, Picture Perfect Camera Settings. It's a fantastic starting point for anybody eager to understand the basics of camera settings in various shooting scenarios. And it's tailored to beginners who want to get out of auto mode, providing clear, easy to follow suggestions on where to start with your settings. So whether you're capturing a stunning landscape or a family portrait, Picture Perfect Camera Settings will help you to get off of automatic mode and explore the possibilities your camera offers. Remember, mastering photography settings is a journey, and this guide is your first step. And the perfect resource to guide you towards finding the right settings for your style. So grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com and start your journey to better photos. Sicily, yes. C-E-C-I-L-Y. Sicily, okay, yes. Uh, I am the worst with names, as as you all know. Uh, hopefully I pronounce that right. Uh so uh, her question is, I am new to photography and I have not bought my first camera yet. But I know in one of your episodes, you said that you sometimes buy used equipment online. Um, side note, every camera I've ever bought was used except for the uh, X100V that I uh, pre-ordered. Um, but yes, uh, every camera that I've ever owned has been used. Uh, she then goes on to say, I see that camera. I see a camera that I'm interested in on Facebook Marketplace, and I'm trying to figure out how to assess whether a used camera looks legit. Um, it would be a big purchase, so I'm hesitant to pull the trigger without knowing the right questions to ask. How would you assess whether a camera seems to be in good condition? It is a Sony A9. Now, I actually uh, directly replied to her email because um, it, was, it was very time-based and... Um, I gave her some answers, but I wanted to share my thoughts here, uh, as I know that, again, buying used gear is not uncommon, and there are 
some things that you can do to protect yourself and save some cash. So the short answer is, if you are new to photography, it is best to buy from a reputable used camera dealer, <laughs> meaning a, a local camera shop um, is going to be your best bet because then you can walk in and talk to somebody about the camera, ask questions. But if you would rather buy um, a camera online, uh, maybe you don't have access to a local camera store, you know, or whatever, then I have bought all of my used camera gear uh, in a professional sense on uh, from keh.com, keh.com, kiloechohotel.com. Um, they're my go-to for buying used gear. They specialized in you. Uh, they specialize in used gear. Uh, they just do a great job making sure that it is, you know, fantastic quality, accurately represented in uh, the uh, description as far as the uh, the condition of the gear. Um, and if there are any questions, uh, you know that you know if if you buy it on Facebook Marketplace and it turns out bad. You know, that person could technically just block you and then you can never, you know, reach out to them again. You don't know who they are. All these things. KEH has a, a money back guarantee or, or something. I think it's 30 days. I'm not a thousand percent sure. But um, yes, that is that is the company that I go to for buying used gear. And then as you grow as a photographer, you will learn, you know, kind of where cameras fail um, and what parts are more important, most important to you so that then you can focus on them when looking for a, a next camera. Um, typically, things like scratches, uh, I'm not too worried about. Um, photographers typically take pretty good care of their gear. Uh, there's a huge market for camera bags, camera cases, camera, you know, coverings or whatever. Uh, and again, therefore, I find that photographers typically take pretty good care of their gear. And if there's lights, scuffs and scratches, I find that it's actually usually from like the tripod plate, things like that. Uh, and then like rubber seals, the uh, uh, plastic parts of the camera, those can probably start to wear out the, the fastest. So if you do see a camera in person, you can just kind of check those things out and then assess for yourself. Does the plastic or the rubber feel you know, relatively new, um, does it, or does it feel like it's starting to dry out and kind of crack? That's basically it, right? I mean, you, you can go deeper by giving it a full, uh, you know, rundown, uh, putting it through checks for the sensor and, you know, uh, uh, how fast it records images to the card and whatnot. But again, that is just so much to go through that I typically just leave that up to the experts and just buy, you know, used from again, keh.com. They do great. But what is most important uh, about this email that I want to talk about is uh, that she mentioned that she wanted to buy a Sony A9. The Sony A9 is their flagship camera. All right. I think new, it's like $4,000 just for the camera body. No lenses. And if you're going to use a flagship camera, you're not going to buy, you know, $150 lenses. Uh, typically, flagship lenses are in the, you know, high thousand to two, possibly $3,000 range. Um, but I think that it's easy as a, as a, as a new photographer, just getting into photography to think to yourself that the more expensive the camera, the better the camera is going to perform. And then if the camera performs better, the better images that it will capture, <laughs> which boils down to uh, if a camera is more money, it is going to take better photos. But I am sad to report that that is just simply not the case. And here is 
why, all right? There's this common path in photography that, that uh, most people follow. You get interested in photography, so you buy a camera. Let's say that you, you know, buy the most expensive camera. You, when you first get that camera, you typically shoot an auto for a while. And when you shoot an auto, you discover that you don't like the photos that are coming out of your camera. Some people like them. That's fine. Let them enjoy their auto photos. But if you look at these photos taken in auto and you realize that you don't like the photos that your camera is capturing in auto, you then have a decision to make about photography as a whole, right? You decide whether you are going to dive deeper into photography and find out why you don't like your photos and how to change that, or you decide, you know what, photography is not for me, and then you just sell your camera gear, right? Those are those are the those are the main two paths. Okay, so um, in this case, um, she had sent me a link to a uh, the Facebook market page, marketplace uh, um, ad, and I can tell that this person, uh, by looking at the other things that they were selling, likes to buy the best of the best <laughs> and then sell whatever doesn't work or whatever. And specifically in this description, it said, you know, bought it to photograph my kids growing up. Turns out I just love the photos from my iPhone just as, just as much. So I'm selling this camera. So this person decided that they didn't like shooting an auto or they didn't like the photos coming out of auto. So they just decided to just sell all their gear. And then that was it rather than learn to shoot manual and then take control of their image. So what this means is that they would have got the exact same result if they would have spent $500 on a camera from, you know, Walmart or whatever, as they did by spending, you know, $4,000 plus on a camera. Um, you know, they, they, they discovered that, uh, that essentially auto mode is not going to, the, the, the price of the camera isn't going to make your photos, uh, amazing. Um, and kind of in the same sense, here's an analogy here that like as a, uh, first time driver, right? If you're 15 years old, this was, this was my situation here. Uh, a 1986 golf, uh, the two door it's burgundy red, but the, the hood was, um, rusted. Uh, it is essentially the same vehicle as a brand new Porsche. And what I mean is that it's not until you really get experience in this case, driving that, you know, what is important to you. So let's say that you buy the 86 golf and you realize, oh man, um, let me take that back. Let's say that you buy a 1986 golf for $400 and you realize, oh man, I actually really like, uh, motorcycles instead. I'm going to stick with motorcycles. You get rid of the 1986 golf. Not a big loss, right? Uh, you didn't put too much money into it. You realized, uh, something about yourself and the direction that you wanted to go. So you went that way. Now let's say that you bought a brand new Porsche. Uh, you probably financed it. You have a payment. You put down a lot to get the car and you realize actually motorcycles are my thing, but you realize that if you want to sell it, there's a, there's a, you're going to have a huge loss when it comes to selling that vehicle, because you bought it new, you have this payment, you already put so much down on it. It's worth less than, than, than what you owe on it. And therefore, um, you're, you're going to lose a ton of money. So you're probably going to stick with that thing and just not enjoy the experience. And if you don't enjoy the experience, you're not going to go deeper into that thing. So it's going to be harder for you to transfer into something else. And, you know, in this case, 
it'd be harder for you to, uh, you know, find the right camera that fits your needs as a photographer. So I like to take a more conservative a- approach when getting started. Um, and I truly think that like for everybody's first camera, it should literally just be the cheapest camera that they can buy because uh, you're always going to learn something about yourself and then have a direction to go once you're ready to upgrade from that camera. So each camera maker has a, a good, better and a best level of cameras. So I would just recommend, you know, you go to that local camera shop again to talk to somebody, ask them questions, um, you know, figure out what camera's right for you, and you're going to leave with a solid camera. So I really hope that helps. Uh, in fact, I know that you uh, you made a decision. I got you to uh, buy the, the Fuji X-T30 with a, uh, uh, I forgot the lens, it might have been the 16 to 55. But regardless, all of that was like half the price of just the camera body of the A9 itself. And now you're freer to, to figure out what it is that you love in photography and then just focus on that. So uh, for everybody else who's listening, I really hope that that kind of gives you some insight on t- why I recommend buying just a super cheap camera to get uh, started with. Okay, next question that we have comes from Vicky. We've got a good blend of uh, guys, girls here. Okay, Vicky says, I am shooting more weddings and I'm struggling with my flash. Whew. I'm struggling to find the balance between it looks quote unquote too flashy and underexposing my image, which tends to be what happens now. Help! Exclamation point. I want to be able to nail this with both on and off camera flash. Okay. Uh, Back in, uh, I just looked it up, episode 192, I interviewed photographer Chris Duncan, who gave one of the best analogies I've ever heard about working with Flash, which is to season your photos with Flash, right? So thinking of your photo as a meal, your Flash is the seasoning. You don't want it too flashy, but you still want a little bit of extra flavor in there. And that is just a perfect analogy for Flash, right? Because some people like their food, a little bit more seasoned than others. And you as the photographer can kind of determine what that is for you. There's no, you know, absolute here in this, uh, in his answer. So then the, it becomes, how do you figure out what is that balance between too flashy and underexposing your images? So I will say that um, even if you don't shoot in manual for 90% of the day, when you use flash, I cannot recommend enough the, the benefit of shooting in manual, because not only if you're shooting in an auto mode, is it, it are your camera settings, you know, constantly changing and you're not in control of that uh, just based on how much light is, is, is coming in. But now you have to add an additional component of adding flash on top of that, which is, you know, adds light. And that's what flash does. So when you are in manual mode, your settings will remain consistent. So here is my approach. When I show up to a uh, wedding reception and it's time to bust out the flash, I will, uh, typically it's it's darker, but there are some sort of, um, you know, DJ lights, colored lights or whatever. So I will, uh, without the flash on, will use my camera to find an exposure that is a bit underexposed. Um, and the reason why is that that makes the, the color of the lights pop a bit more. Uh, it typically gives me a, a bit faster of a shutter speed to uh, slow down uh, some exaggerated motion if I need to. Um, and then I use my flash. Then I just simply add my flash to it um, to, to create my uh, foreground exposure. So that way, 
If I'm always shooting in a general direction, say towards the DJ, right off to the side of the DJ, because that's where the best light is, then I know that that exposure is not going to change because I'm in manual mode and those lights, while they may move around a bit, they're not changing the intensity of, of the light. And then I use my flash to illuminate the person in front of me, not the background, because I don't care what the background, I don't care if the background gets any, you know, flashlight on it. I just want my subject in front of me illuminated. So again, if you're using um, a manual flash now, because you've dialed in your settings on your camera for that exposure, now all you have to do is go up or down on your flash power to correctly expose your image. And now if your person is always within kind of that distance, then your exposure essentially never has to change. You don't have to change your camera settings. You don't have to change your flash power settings ever. Again, this is, this is we're, we're, we're assuming that you're in a reception. There are two ways to bring home more money with your photography business. You either get more clients or you spend less of the money that you make. CloudSpot Studio helps you keep more of what you earn. With the lowest payment processing fees in the industry, the average photographer will save $300 annually. And that's just more money to invest in essential gear like a new flash or a sweet camera bag. You know, one that is perfect for storing all of the wedding day snacks that you can pack. But it's not just about savings. CloudSpot Studio is designed to streamline your workflow. Easily organize shoots, send contracts, questionnaires, invoices, and you're really going to enjoy the hassle-free payments. So sign up for a free CloudSpot account at deliverphotos.com and... As a bonus, you're going to get access to my exclusive wedding and portrait contracts and questionnaires at no additional cost. Why let fees chip away at your profits? Empower your photo journey with CloudSpot and watch your business soar. Light's not going to change. It's dark outside. It's dark inside the, the venue. There are some DJ lights, but the intensity does not change. You lock in your camera exposure. You don't have to change it. Now, as long as you set your flash power to properly illuminate somebody who is, say, between four and eight feet away from you, that's what you got to figure out. Either go up or down on the flash power until you like a, an exposure that blends well uh, where they are properly exposed and the background kind of has enough um, uh, detail in the lights or whatever that you're happy with the image. Now, all you have to do is focus on keeping the background somewhat consistent, shoot, meaning shooting in that general direction, and making sure that when you photograph somebody that they are within, say, three to eight feet away from you, and their exposure will never change because your flash is always going to fire the exact same amount. So the way that you can practice this possibly at home is, um, uh, you know, everybody's kind of got these... Uh, LED, you know, colored lights are cheap enough these days. You can get some bulbs. You can get some, uh, you know, just LED stuff, RGB stuff on, on Amazon. Maybe, you know, go into your bedroom, make sure that it's dark. You pull the curtains or you just, you know, wait till it's nighttime. And then you kind of set them up, point it at the walls. Have your camera on a tripod uh, so that it's, you know, just to make it easier for you. Expose for those lights so that, they're, that they have a nice rich color, but the rest of the image is still kind of dark. 
And then get somebody in front of your camera. Take that same photo, you're gonna see that they're backlit. Put the flash on your camera, and now, because your camera settings are set, all you have to do, again, is just go up or down on the power of your flash, meaning either give it more flash or less flash, until you find a balance that you like. And then maybe move it to a different room where it's different dimensions and then go through that setup again. And then that's the practice that I would go through every, you know, five or six times before your next wedding so that, you know, when you show up to that reception, you just, you know, do X, Y, Z, you find it and then you're good to go. That was a tough one. I really hope that that made sense, Vicky. Um, and I hope that, you know, you can find that balance and let us know how, uh, you know, how it goes for you. All right. And, uh, lastly, uh, I guess my last question here is from Mark. Mark says, Hi, Raymond. Love the podcast. I find it very helpful and informative. My question for you is, is it worth using ND uh, and polarizer filters when shooting weddings and portraits outside? Or is it more of a hindrance? Okay. Uh, thank you so much for the question, Mark. Uh, I have to start by saying I can't directly answer if it's worth it or not. Uh, because uh, for you, you're the only person who knows the style of photography that you want to achieve. So I would say for some people, it is 100% necessary. For others, it's not. Um, I'll dive in a little bit deeper. But for those who are unaware, um, a neutral density filter is, you know, think of it like sunglasses for your lens. So it just blocks X amount of light, you know, uh, one stop, three stops, five stops, 10 stops of light from coming into your lens. And then um, you can just use your, you know, adjust your camera settings to, to, to still make a proper exposure, but it doesn't change the color. Um, so this is great in like a really bright day because now your settings don't have to be, you know, you can shoot at something that's not, you know, F16 or whatever. Um, you can have a, a wider aperture. And then a polarizer is, it just, you know, takes the light uh, coming in, uh, light moves in a certain direction. You can change that direction with a polarizer filter and uh, kind of bring more contrast into an image so that it looks less hazy, um, so that the sky is is bluer. If you've ever had a pair of polarized uh, sunglasses, you know, when you put them on, you're like, whoa, this is different. Um, not wildly different so that, you know, you can tell that it's like, you know, a Willy Wonka type effect, but it's enough to where it really helps um, in a photo. But I will say that I have... Um, no, I don't think so. I have never used an ND filter to control my exposure on a wedding day. There is just simply so much going on uh, on a wedding day uh, that it's so hard to imagine. You have to keep screwing on a filter, unscrewing a filter, screwing it back on, unscrewing it, depending on the change of the light. Um, you know, I mean, if you if, if if you have like, say, a five stop ND filter on and you screw it on because it's nice and bright outside, but then everybody kind of walks under like some tree and some open shade that could cause you to, you know, open up your shutter speed to something like one, I don't know, 15th of a second, let's say. And then everybody's blurry because your shutter speed was too low because you're using that ND filter and you didn't want to take it off. But if you did, then you got to turn it back on and then you're going to get finger smudges on there. There's just a lot going on. Um, and the truth is, is that cameras today uh, do a great job at being able to cut down on light. Um, and then, you you know, I I have shot at 
you know, one eight thousandth of a shutter speed to cut down light. And I'm okay with that because my camera can go there. I'm not shooting there all the time. Um, that's its job. Um, and it means that I don't have to compromise missing a photo by screwing on a filter, screwing off a filter, putting it in my bag. Did I lose it? Getting finger smudges on there. Hold on. I have to clean it. All those sorts of things. Um, but this is for wedding photography, right? Um, I will say though that I did use ND filters, um, often when using flash outside though, because uh, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Um, uh, when you're, um, when you're using flash, your camera has a max sync speed. Um, and that is the flash and the camera have to, have to match up. <laughs> the flash has to fire while the, while your camera's shutter curtain is open, right? So they have to match. There's a, that's what's called the sync speed. So the max sync speed, um, for flash when I was using Canon cameras was one 250, one 250th of a second. If my camera was any faster than that, one one thousandth of a second, uh, then I couldn't guarantee that the flash would fire properly, um, capturing it in the photo. So when you're shooting outdoors, you have to cut down a ton of light. So you either have to stop down again, like I was saying earlier to like F 16. Um, or if you use an ND filter, you can, if you have a five stop ND filter, um, instead of shooting at F 16, you can now shoot at F 2.8. And, uh, cause, uh, it's five stop difference between F 2.8 and F 16. And that means that now you can still have your subject, um, in focus, have them lit well, and have the background fall out of focus as well. But that's the type of images that I wanted to produce at a wedding. Um, so I took the time, you know, uh, specifically for wedding portraits. So I took the time. The rest, the rest of the wedding day, uh, I did not do that at all. And again, let me preface this by saying this applies to my experience at weddings. If image quality is everything for you, you know, you're shooting landscapes, you know, whatever, uh, architecture, you have the time. You're not worried about somebody's moving. Who's coming? Where are we going? What's the next thing? Then if you had the time to, to, to do that, to use filters, then I would 100% recommend you do that because it will give you better image quality. Um, so yeah, again, uh, um, I really hope that helps answer your question, Mark. Um, uh, it all depends on your style of photography. So that is it today uh, with our monthly Q&A episode. Again, I want to remind you that if you have a photo question that you want answered here on the show, all you got to do is send me your question uh, to head over to beginnerphotopod.com forward slash QA. Again, that is beginnerphotopod.com forward slash QA to submit your question for the show. And if you have a question about photography, chances are others do too. So by you asking your question, not only will you get the answer that you are looking for, but you will be helping out others who have the exact same question and are struggling with the exact same issue. So give yourself a pat on the back for being such a helpful photographer in asking your question. Again, lastly, beginnerphotopod.com forward slash QA to send in your photo question now. Remember, the more that you shoot today, the better of a photographer you will be tomorrow. That is it. I will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Beginner Photography Podcast. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving a review in iTunes. Keep shooting, and we'll see you next week. 